You are listening to The Natural Philosopher with Dr. Mick Pope, a podcast on science, the environment, and the Christian faith. This podcast is written and produced on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and I pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging of all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander nations, acknowledging that sovereignty has never been ceded. It always was, and always will be, Aboriginal land. Well, welcome to another episode of The Natural Philosopher, with me, Dr Mick Pope. This episode is in, uh, looks at Thomas Orwood's book, open and relational theism an introduction to life-changing ideas and making some comments about creation and creation care so the title of this episode is thomas ord open theism and climate change and this whole idea of, of creation care is not foreign to the material of the book as we shall see now i was meant to record this a couple of weeks ago but a problem with my credit card with my payment for podbean means i uh, meant i couldn't renew um, my subscription for hosting Last week, I was busy preparing for a three-hour seminar on my master's thesis as part of a, a course on creation care at Whitley College. And last night, I downloaded the IPCC report, which you no doubt you'll be um, seeing in the media, and I've just not had time to prepare uh, a look at the summary for policymakers. So hopefully next week, I can share my thoughts on it. My brief comment is that it's not good news, uh, but there is time for urgent action to avoid some of the consequences of climate change. We do have to adjust to a rough ride into the future, and to be honest, this is not new. Uh, we've heard this stuff before and really should have been doing a lot more with the information that we've had from many IPCC reports. Remember, this is number six. So to suggest somehow that we're surprised by this or anything else that's come out of major scientific bodies is is ridiculous. And if you consider the inaction since the last IPCC report and how we've blown the opportunity to avoid the warming that we've seen, the emissions that we've seen, it's quite frankly criminal. And people are toying with the idea now, of course, of ecocide as something that could be tried as a crime. And, you know, the day will come, I think, when an international court will try people for ecocide crimes. I really do think that it's coming. And if it doesn't come, that means we're in a really bad position. It's something that needs to be taken seriously and, and legislation and legal frameworks need to be put in place. As a Christian... I am to greet this, as I do any other issue, through a Christian lens. Now, whether or not you think that that's of value is, is up to you, ultimately. Uh, there are some Christians who don't think that it's important or essential, and there are those who think religion is equal. I saw a, a tweet by someone I follow and who follows me uh, that it was just a matter of language, the difference between superstition and religion. Well, be that as it may, this is what drives me. I think a theological lens is important, and the more sophisticated, the better. I've long had an interest in open theism. And remember, this is the Theological Safe Space, this podcast. So if that's a term that causes you problems, well, 
that's just the nature of this podcast. So when I saw that Tom Ord had a new book on this, and he and I follow each other on Twitter, hi Tom, I hope that um, the comments I make are helpful, I had to snap it up. Mind you, I'm a bibliophile, so I snap up a lot of books, but I actually started it as soon as it arrived in the post, so that was good. This book is an introduction, um, so for me it opens many cans of worms, but because it's an introduction it doesn't really spill out all the contents, it just, there's a lot of detail that just wiggles in the can. And don't get me wrong, it's actually a good introduction. It uses plain language rather than a lot of theological terminology, even though this, of course, has its place and I'm no anti-intellectual. And apart from the questions at the end of each chapter that are always useful for using these books as discussion starters, and I did this with my, my last book, All Things New, so I think discussion questions in the chapters is good. The thing that's really nice about this book is the QR codes at the end of each chapter and so you pop out your smartphone and click on those and it takes you to a YouTube lecture a maximum that I've seen so far I haven't watched them all about 30 minutes that looks at the topic from a different angle so I thought it was a nice touch and you know it works really well to reinforce stuff that you've read with with stuff that you can watch there are also further readings at the end of the book which are helpful uh, for me however in an attempt to be a broad tent approach i don't think tom emphasizes enough some key theological theories i say theological theories that's my new uh, buzzword or idea for doctrines instead so it obviously as an introduction it doesn't go deep enough um, and there's things i really want to tackle in due course the first chapter begins with the problem of evil and suffering technically known as theodicy and this is the starting place uh, for many when considering open theism there's the painful issue of sexual assault as the Me Too movement has made clear, and the current reality of COVID-19. Just a couple of the examples that he uses to probe questions about the nature of God. And so the question facing us, and in the book, is, if God is all good and all powerful, why doesn't God put a stop to evil and suffering? Either God is not all good, and most theists reject that, or maybe the way in which we think about divine power needs a rethink. Some Christians wrap it up in a mystery, uh, but as Tom notes, this can be a cover for inconsistencies. I've written here inconsistencies in God, but rather inconsistencies in the way in which we do our theology, the way we think about God, the way we talk about God, the way we reflect about the nature of God, and apply that in the way in which we view the world. Now, of course, some Christians will tell us that in asking these questions or thinking about it this way, we're not letting God be God. I once heard a sermon where this phrase was trotted out. It was a wooden Calvinist interpretation of Romans 9 to 11. That focus on the individual, and it's all about individual predestination, and that's just God being God, and if you question that, well, you're questioning God, which, of course, glosses over what the text is really about, about the issue of, of groups of people, particularly Jews and Gentiles. This is a thought that struck me three decades ago. I came up with the idea of corporate election years before I heard the term formally in my theological studies at a, a Baptist college. So the let God be God is 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 usually used for a cop-out due to the inflexibility in someone's rather rigid theological system. Now, Tom Ord lists a number of reasons people come to open theism and what seems to be, I think, a closely related corollary that is a relational theism A God who allows the future to be open is also a God who relates to the creatures they share 
uh, that share in this openness, who contribute to the openness of, of the universe. This is where I think the book could be more thoroughly Trinitarian, but I'll say more about that later. And Tom touches on the issue of the Trinity, but again in this being broad church notes that there are, there are those who don't ascribe to that. So it's, it's a book that's meant to encompass as many different views and approaches to open and relational theism as possible. But um, I think the Trinity is where it's at. Now, my own attraction to open theism comes from the problem of evil, of course, as, as the book begins, The Odyssey from the lessons learned uh, from physics and scientists, theologians like the late John Polkinghorne, as well as various biblical texts. You know, there are texts where God is surprised, texts where God repents, texts where God includes human responses in the divine plan. In the face of these issues, it's, it is classical theism that seems like an idol of stone and wood, not an incarnate God of flesh. And, the Incarnation is another theological theory I think gets light treatment in the book. I think more could have been done with that. Openness is the idea, and this is chapter two, that the future is not predetermined. There's the analogy you may have heard before that God is like a jazz band leader, more than a rigid conductor who ensures every note we played as commanded, as written. Uh, openness is an experiment and a, a creative expression. This implied implies also that God is in time. Now, I think, again, this would be a perfect place to discuss the incarnation or kenotic theology. And John Polkinghorne spoke about creation as kenosis. In making room for the non-divine other, um, God makes room for the other, including you and me. So there's, there's a pulling back, there's allowing us to have um, an influence to be a cause. Now, Ord doesn't insist that God has always been bound by time, but tr to truly have an open future, God can't see the whole of history from outside. And funnily enough, uh, Molinist William Lane Craig agrees, and he wrote a book that just did my head in, where he talks about the tensed facts need to be understood in a tensed rather than a timeless way. So if you want to make a statement about uh, something that has involves tense, past, present, future, you can't express that in a tenseless fashion. Of course, Molinism seems to be a halfway house between openness and Calvinism that I don't find convincing. You know, that God knows all the potential possibilities, including the one uh, that will happen. I am happy, however, that Tom doesn't uphold process theology, which so embeds God in time to mean God is only becoming. God is being as well, and not in the rigidity of uh, impassibility, that God's not affected by anything outside of God. Rather, quantities like steadfast love don't change. And love for Ord means the divine giving, but also the divine receiving. So that's definitely not an impassable God. Uh, Tom Ord also defends a limit of divine foreknowledge. I generally don't know how far to press this. If God is bigger than the universe, in some metaphysical sense, can God therefore rerun the universe an infinite number of times in the divine mind to work out what will happen next in the Molinist sense and then choose from all the possibilities? Is it too limiting to suggest that God can't know things or is it a case of God so choosing to preserve creaturely freedom and how far down the, the great chain of being do we go with that and hence somehow self-limiting divine foreknowledge? And I think that's where it's at rather than the can't comes from um, divine love and respect for creaturely freedom rather than 
the kind of limits that um, I think process theism places on God in my very simplistic and not very well-read understanding of process theism. This relates to one of my bugbears, which has been when people pray according to God's will, quote-unquote, and then openly state in their prayer that if what they ask isn't the divine will, for God to do the other. <laughs> so, you know, if this is according to a will God, then do it. If not, then don't. Doesn't that make a mockery uh, of prayer? Uh, yet the thing I don't get satisfactorily out of this book is how petitionary prayer achieves things. I'll talk more about the comments that are offered then, but, you know, Tom Ord refuses to allow God to force anything. This is an aspect of love, and this is potentially problematic if this extends all the way down to the inanimate. It comes close to a non-interventionalist God. It, it's something that's not resolved in my mind. Do we make God less of an actor than ourselves? The appeal to lack of forcing, of course, gives an ethical shape to action. But I worry about a God who can do nothing at all. Now, that's not the intent of open theism. But I would have thought that God being God makes divine action both perfectly moral and capable. The chapter on relational theism is a good one. And, and, and here is where the social trinity is offered as, I think, the best solution. This isn't said explicitly or explicitly enough to register in my brain, but maybe in the vein of not wanting to be forceful in argumentation. Um, it's a gentle kind of argument. It's there, but so much more could be said about the theological theory of perichoresis, for example, the relational nature of God, the interpenetration of the three members of the Trinity. Again, recognising that God is love demands a relational form of theism if our language is to be at all analogical about God. So if God is love, it, you need to be able, it needs to be a proper analogy to the nature of God. There needs to be a relationship between how we understand love and, and divine love, even if our language is imperfect. Uh, Tom acknowledges that open and relational theism places God in a box. All human language is limited when it comes to the divine. John Calvin, for example, recognized that God accommodates God's self to our limited minds. Uh, Tom simply claims that the box he presents is the best box. We might take uh, that a step forward and, and say that it's the best theory with which to read scripture, experience, intuition, and all the other insights he lists in his first chapter. Elsewhere, he claims to have solved the problem of evil with this formulation of God, and I think that's a bold statement. I, I'd prefer to say that it provides a heuristic for approaching the problem that provides more promise than other theories like classical or process theism. And I can, that's a sort of statement that I could agree with. Chapter four introduces a curious neologism, or a new word, omnipotent, rather than omnipotent or powerful or impotent, omnipotent puts love first. Power is exercised in love. Now this could be, of course, the answer to my question about divine action. And I think using parenting as a good analogy, as he does, and it reminds me of the top-down causation advanced by John Polkinghorne. So advice is given, information is inputted. Sometimes, although Tom may um, draw back from this a bit, limits are put in place. This is the message of the garden story, I think. Uh, and yes, even those limits can be transgressed, but limits are sometimes important. And even limits somewhat forcefully applied. Now we're a species that can limit itself and our ability to push boundaries appears endless. Yet COVID and climate change point to the risks of this. Our mastery is far from complete. 
Central to amipotence appears to be our own free will, and the respect of this is fundamental to Tom Ord. It was nice to see a philosophical, albeit brief, defense of free will, together with some links to the science. And uh, I think one of the, the videos he links to is to philosopher Alfred Mele. And you can find lots of videos of his on neuroscience and free will on YouTube. Uh, after the break, I'll cover off on the last two chapters and then reflect on the climate crisis that the latest IPCC report has laid out and how it relates to this theistic model. Welcome back. We've been considering Thomas Ord's new book on open and relational theism. And I want to apply this to thinking about the climate crisis shortly. We've got two chapters left to cover in the book. Chapter five looks at various theological doctrines, or as I'm calling them, theories, through the lens of panentheism, which is the idea from Acts 17, that we live and move and have our being in God. Now, this is not the same as pantheism, where everything is part of God. That makes the problem of evil all the more stark. It's either an illusion, that is, evil's an illusion, or it's all God's fault because everything is God. This is not the shape of the solution found in the Bible. Or, I think, um, I've written complete rubbish here in my transcript, um, that we found in Jesus. Um, panentheism for Ord appears to be always being influenced by the divine. This influence is subtle, sometimes we are unaware of it. But I'm not sure if I agree that it can't be spatial as well. And of course, this depends on how far you take the Kabbalistic notion of Zimzum, the idea that God makes way for the other. You know, how far withdrawn is God from us, quote-unquote, physically? That's an interesting concept to try and illustrate or think about, given the spiritual nature of God. But you know, given that, that makes me think that we need to think about uh, panentheism in a spatial uh, sense as well as being an influential sense and I think it needs to be again thoroughly Trinitarian and that there's a strong role given to the spirit in that uh, just as an aside and it's something that Tom picks up on panentheism I think presents a problem for eternal conscious punishment as indeed does divine love and he hints a little bit at that at a one point talking about a possible eventual universalism which is, again, just one of the many options to list in the book because it's very broad, um, broad church, big tent kind of approach to the various views of open and relational theism, which is on the one hand good, but on another, if you're, you're wanting to, to sharpen a particular view, it's, it's, I guess, a bit frustrating. Another interesting idea discussed in Chapter 5 is that of creation. And this again brings me to John Polkinghorn, or indeed even Irenaeus, that creation is open and unfinished. Now, a bit of a quibble. He uses the term co-creator. I much prefer the idea of sub-creator, echoing um, Tolkien when he was talking about the creation of works of fiction. Now, to be sure, of course, all creatures create. Sex is an expression of this, and art would be another example. 
However, I'm reminded of an episode of the series uh, Cosmos by the late um, cosmologist Carl Sagan, who says um, in that wonderful New York drawl, if you want to make apple pie, you must first create the universe. And this idea is also captured by the following joke. So a scientist was talking to God one day. And the scientists claimed uh, that science was now taking over the territory which was once the domain of God alone. The, science said, the scientists said that they could now make life from non-life uh, and that they would prove uh, that they could do so by making life out of the dirt, just as God had done in Genesis 2. Ah, says God, that's impressive, but make your own dirt. My point is that humans are sub-creators because we rely upon what is already there. To be sure, following the work of Stuart Kaufman, the future is genuinely emergent. All you need is some foundations like dirt to open up a vast future of possibilities. Uh, I don't just want to focus on God being the start of the uh, creative process in some Thomistic sense, nor adopt the process view of God simply being part of the creation, creative machinery and entirely subject to it. Instead, we need to recognize both an ongoing role for a creator and an important role for creatures that is subject to the former. Now, my own master's work on the priestly tradition in the Pentateuch suggests that human agency as sub-creator sits alongside that of other agents, that is, non-human ones, and that's not just the animals, but the, the earth itself. Indeed, the Eretz in the Hebrew, translated as earth or land of Israel, has a relationship which predates that of humanity or Israel. I tend to wonder whether animism and panpsychism would be fruitful areas to pursue, and I'm certainly going to be reading a book on the latter in short order. And, of course, the idea of a Christian animism resonates well, doesn't it, when thinking post-colonially, um, particularly in the Australian context, thinking very carefully about the, the nature and the witness of the non-human as fellow creatures. But all this given, there is the sense in which divine preeminence means that we are sub and not co-creators, and that status should keep us humble. And I think part of the problem of the Anthropocene Climate change is we've lost uh, sight of the fact, not just that the non-human creation reflects the nature and being of God, but that as the image bearers of God, we are not God. We are image bearers and don't, um, when we think that we're co-creators or indeed the creators rather than sub-creators, then we're, we're losing a grasp on an important sense of humility. Anyway. Ord, uh, Tom Ord does make the link between creation care and an open and relational theism, which I warmly receive. So thank you for that, Tom. Our creative role demands that we are not damaging and destructive. He sees the need for us to make the world a better place for other animals. This surely requires us to see them both as fellow sub-creators, as I said just before, and even neighbours. The parable of the Good Samaritan, as I've written elsewhere in my book, A Climate of Justice, Loving Our Neighbours in a Warming World, is a model for restorative justice, one aspect of love for neighbour, which of course is also an extension of our love for God. Creation care is certainly a part of Tom's expansive view of salvation, which seeks the good of all creatures, again, to be, to be welcomed. And he's got a, a rather nice long list of, 
of an expansive view of salvation that moves beyond you know that very narrow uh, view of the individual status of course includes that i mean yeah it's the constant distraction of when you present an expansive view people think that you've dumped the baby with the bathwater, and that's not the case with tom's work this is the making of all things new that we find in john of the apocalypse and again i've spoken about this you know written about this in a book um all things new and I don't think the res, but here, and this is important in talking about love as primary and talking about the expansive nature of salvation, I don't think the resurrection gets its full voice here in Tom's treatment. And again, I know there is a broad tent approach to speak about objective immortality, our living on in the mind of God. However, under subjective immortality, Tom writes about the afterlife. But I'm with Tom Wright. It's all about life after, life after death. It's our shared resurrection fate. And see Romans 8, that gives teeth to creation care. Now, to be sure, there is an issue uh, with subjective versus objective Im- immortality for the non-human. C.S. Lewis, for example, thought our pets would be raised, but not necessarily um, animals we didn't have a relationship with. And I don't know what what's going to happen, but the explicitly physical nature of the Bible means I think more attention needs to be paid to the resurrection, along with the significance of the incarnation. Uh, finally, in the last chapter, it returns to the theme of love that is so central to the book. Love is the answer to the kinds of questions raised in chapter one, those theodicy-type uh, questions of personal um, suffering and evil. Love will be our guide to understanding God and following God in the world. It gives us a reason to wake up in the morning and a hope for the future in the face of both personal and global existential threats like climate change. Now, this is a book I can recommend, especially if you haven't read much about open theism before. It will leave you with a lot of questions, but I suspect if you've ever genuinely suffered and not been comforted by what I'd describe as the softer forms of fatalism on offer in conservative circles, this book will resonate with you. If you want something that appears to align better with science, it will intrigue you. Uh, for me, it's left a lot of questions. And at risk of falling prey to Dunning-Kruger, a real desire to write in this area myself. Not a bad thing, huh? Um, now, coming back to climate change from an open and relational perspective, let me provide my quick take in the last couple of minutes. So creation is an open and ongoing process. God makes the other to be freely itself and leads it forward to a flourishing that must ultimately transcend the present order of physical things. Humans, as chief among the conscious sub-creators, introduce moral disorder uh, when it we act to destroy. Our choices are warped by our own concerns. The desire for the few to dominate the many has characterized our history, and our ingenuity has accelerated our destructiveness. This tendency to turn inwards means outward destructiveness. Yet our ingenuity has created beauty in art and science that complements that of the non-human other. It echoes our unique way of imaging God and the world. God can and will use these things to sum up all things, but to live as if we were the only agents ignores the sub-creator status of others and the omnipresence and amipotence of God. The incarnation of Jesus and the future resurrection represent God's most direct actions. The former, so that we might truly know what it means to be creators, to turn outwards and to be reconciled with God and all things, 
The latter shows us that our own efforts are used in a deeply relational way. God guides us, but responds to us. God carries us and leads us, but waits on us and grows us to be better actors. And indeed, in the face of climate change, we are called to act. Maybe God chooses not to intervene prematurely. Such an action might let us off the hook, not give us time to be healed and to act to heal. It might be true that no matter what damage we do, God will remake it in the end, but that's not the point. We are called to love, create and heal as the divine loves, creates and heals. It is part of God's actions summed up in resurrection, um, but resurrection is not our work. That's God's work. Mystery remains no matter how clever the box we make for God. Climate change is a frightening call to repent, but with repentance is the opportunity to work with God in a mission that will make a world of difference to the world. So ultimately, I'm, I'm grateful for Thomas Ord. It's a rich vision of God and ourselves, um, certainly richer than the one I first encountered in the faith um, over 30 years ago. And I've spoken about that before, how it was a valuable picture presented to me, but certainly a very incomplete picture. And I guess that's just the way it is. More than that, um, for this theology and science nerd come activist, this book is a marvellous jumping off point for more thinking, for doing, being, uh, writing and reflecting. So uh, some older Australians will get this, but do yourself a favour uh, and pick up a copy. Uh, it's yeah, it's, it's well worth a read. I, I think um, open and relational theism is a rich area of thinking. Enough. Uh, finishing a little early this episode. So again, thank you uh, for listening and God bless. You have been listening to The Natural Philosopher. This podcast was written and produced by Mick Pope. The theme music is from Antonio Vivaldi's Four Seasons, conducted by John Harrison with the Wichita State University Chamber Players and downloaded from the Free Music Archive. You can subscribe to this podcast on Podbean, Apple and Google Podcasts and Spotify. You can also like and comment on my Facebook page, Mick Pope, Natural Philosopher.